Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. For thousands of years, as our guest today has written, humans have been enthralled with dolphins. In ancient Greece, dolphins were considered closer to the gods than any other creature, viewed as half-divine messengers between men and gods. To kill a dolphin was an offense punishable by death. The second-century Greco-Roman poet Oppian wrote, quote, "...diviner than the dolphin is nothing yet created, for indeed they were aforetime men and lied in cities along with mortals." End quote. Reverence for these creatures was not limited to the Greeks. There are caves in the French Pyrenees with Ice Age-era dolphin engravings. Stories about dolphins are part of the Australian Aborigines' understanding of the word known as dreamtime. To the Maori of New Zealand... Dolphins have long been seen as water spirits who can carry messages from island to island in times of need. We are separated by 95 million years of evolution, and yet we intuitively feel a striking kinship and admiration for these intelligent creatures. Of course, mythologies like these, as our guest has pointed out, are not verified or scientific truths. But, she writes, quote, mythologies reach a different, deeper kind of truth, one that relies on resonance, not on demonstrable evidence. Mythologies do not account for the origin of people or dolphins in the way that scientific theories do, but mythologies tell us something about who we believe ourselves to be, our values and our place in the world in relation to all the other creatures of nature. Dr. Diana Reese has spent decades in search of truths about dolphins and human-dolphin relations. Dr. Reese is one of the world's experts on dolphin intelligence. She's a professor of psychology at Hunter College in New York City and an internationally renowned marine mammal researcher. She was the first to demonstrate that dolphins can recognize themselves in mirrors, a capability once thought to be unique to humans. She has taught dolphins to use underwater interactive keyboards, has observed dolphins creating their own toys, and has studied their vocal behavior and repertoires. She is also a powerful advocate for protecting the animals that she studies. She's worked to rehabilitate and rescue stranded marine mammals, including the famous Humphrey the whale, who got stuck in the San Francisco Bay. She was one of the key scientists involved in the campaign to protect dolphins from being killed by tuna nets that resulted in the labeling of dolphin-safe tuna. And she worked as a scientific advisor to the 2010 Academy Award-winning documentary film The Cove, which portrays mass dolphin kills and hunting practices in Japan. Dr. Reese's work has been published in many scientific journals and featured on many prominent television programs, including National Geographic, the BBC, and the Today Show. She's also the author of a stunning book, The Dolphin in the Mirror, Exploring Dolphin Minds and Saving Dolphin Lives. Dr. Reese, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here with you both today. So you grew up wanting to be an artist, and you had initially studied stage design before you got your PhD in bioacoustics. What drew you to animals and, and to cetaceans? 
Well, ever since I was a child, I always loved animals. I felt a real kinship, a real connection with them. And uh, when I, when I, as I got older, I also was considering being a veterinarian. I think a lot of kids think that who who care about animals. At the same time, I was interested in the arts. So I was always t- I was always playing back back and forth. Do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? Which one? And originally, I started working in the arts. I went to an art college and I started sculpting, and that led me to go in, into a Master's of Fine Arts program at Temple University in theater. And I studied set design, actually worked as a stage designer for a short time in an experimental theater company in Philadelphia. And then that led me to a place in Poland where I had an epiphany and I changed to science. What happened? Well, I was involved in a theater company. Uh, it was the... Uh, Polish Theater Lab in Wrocław, Poland, run by Jerzy Krutowski, a very famous Polish director. My husband and I at, at the time were there, and uh, we were actually on our honeymoon there. And we found ourselves in the middle of the night um, doing animal calls with people from all different countries. And it was it was a difficult time for me because I was a stage designer, and I was in a very experimental company. It was sort of a workshop. And it was with all actors, not other set designers. And they were trying to break the actors down so that they were throwing out all the techniques they were using and getting back to sort of raw acting skills. I didn't have anything to throw overboard because I wasn't a performer. I was a stage designer. And I found myself again in a dark room making animal calls across this dark void. And it was at that point I thought – I think I need to get out of here. I'm going back into science. But um, it was it was remarkable. I, I enjoyed the workshop, but I, it did take me back to my initial feeling that I really wanted to study animals. And I went back to, to study at Temple University, and I got my Ph.D. there in speech and communication sciences. When was your interest in marine mammals sparked in particular? Yeah. I, I always like to joke that I never actually watched Flipper. I, I never really found that interesting. It seemed very staged. And I hadn't found dolphins all that interesting. I didn't know much about them. It wasn't until I read an article in the New York Times that uh, – and I was already in my PhD program – that said that we were slaughtering whales and dolphins. And I, I just remember thinking, oh, my goodness, we're, we don't know anything about these animals that we're slaughtering. Perhaps if we really learned something about them, that would change the way we interacted with them. And that really got me into studying what we knew and looking up as much as I could. And I decided that was it. I was going to jump in and start studying them. What was the state of our understanding and the, of dolphins and the field at the time? I know John Lilly, who who you knew personally and interacted with, was very famous in the '60s in the era of LSD and Timothy Leary for his work with dolphins. But I wonder, could you explain as you were entering this and became fascinated with them, what did we know about them then? Yeah, well, I started my PhD program in the late '70s, and. This is when John Lilly, who was a neurophysiologist, was the person doing dolphin studies. There were a, there were a handful of other people, but Lilly had had a laboratory in St. Thomas. He had another one in Florida. He wanted to explore the mind of the dolphin, and and he was the first person to really put anything out there saying these are really big-brained mammals, complex, large brains. What are they doing with these brains? And he piqued people's interest, both in the scientific community as well as the lay, the public community, the layman. And he wrote several books about the mind of the dolphin, man and dolphin, books like that. And 
I certainly had my imagination captured by this. When we think about it now and what he did, a lot of what was going on there was not the most ethical way to deal with dolphins. But at the time, we didn't know any better. It's very hard to point your finger and say, boy, that's unethical. But at the time, we didn't know very much about them. And for example, in one ha- in the house he had, which was his laboratory in St. Thomas, he actually had dolphins in very shallow pools that he built that were out- built outside. He brought one animal up in, in an elevator, a sort of a dolphin elevator, into another shallow pool. And again, we wouldn't want to do that now, but at the time that was that was all we knew. But he came up with some amazing discoveries, both about the animal mind, the dolphin mind, and about their capabilities. So for example, he was the first to talk about the fact that they could vocally imitate. They would do it spontaneously, but they could also be trained using food reinforcement to imitate what he called sonic bursts. So he one of his early papers was called Sonic Burst Counting in the Bottlenose Dolphin. So one of his assistants, Margaret, um, could train a dolphin to to imitate what she said. So she would go, here's my bad imitation of Margaret. One, two, three, four. And the dolphin would respond after training, ah, 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 ah. So could, it, he could imitate the numbers of sound bursts she was making. And John Lilly, to that same ex- um, effect, wanted to teach the dolphins and believed he could, though he never succeeded, teach the dolphins how to speak in English and to communicate in that way. And not necessarily in the sense of teaching them English, but in the sense that a communication perhaps of a higher level was possible. You followed in his footsteps, perhaps. Well, yeah, I'm not interested in teaching dolphins English, but I'm interested in giving them some kind of code that we might be able to exchange information, which is really – an idea that many other scientists have had before me, studies have been done with great apes and quite successfully in teaching codes, whether they're like American Sign Language or Dr. Irene Pepperberg has worked with Alex, the African gray parrot, to indeed teach what she calls functional vocalizations um, to an African gray parrot, in this case using words because it works with parrots, teaching Dolphins, to use English, simply wouldn't work. Uh, Their vocal system is quite different. Their whole vocal apparatus is different. And I'm much more interested in learning how they're communicating, decoding what they're doing, but also finding an artificial whistle-like code, something more like what they do that we could use for exchanges. And you had been – you had studied two human whistle languages as a potential key or inspiration to crafting the very unique experiment you designed, right? Yeah. So interestingly, there are places in the world where people speak their own languages like we do, but these regions are generally mountainous where the spoken word doesn't travel very far. And in these areas, people convert their spoken words into whistled languages. They whistle the prosody or the intonation of the spoken language. And I was very fortunate to get a grant from the French government in, while I was in graduate school. And I was, I was in a laboratory, the bioacoustics lab in, outside of Paris. And I worked with René Guy Buzinel, who was the first person to report these whistled languages. And it was so exciting because here's a way of thinking about what kind of informational content could you have encoded in whistles or whistle sequences. So you can look at a whistle sequence that looks like a dolphin whistle or a bird whistle. And it's actually a human sentence. It's communicating enough that another could decode it. 
when we look at whistles of birds or dolphins, they look simple, and we don't think about what kind of information may be in there because they look very simple. But if we look at what humans do, you can see you can pack or encode information into something that looks simple. That's so fascinating. So how, just as someone coming at this from like a thousand feet, how if you were analyzing one of these human utterances, the whistled utterances, what would it look like to unpack the meaning of that without being a participant in the culture? Yeah. So I didn't actually study this myself. My professor, Rene Guibuzanel, studied it. And there are people now like Julian Mayer in France who've picked up that torch and are continuing that work. They're actually looking at the structure of these sounds. So we have what are called sonograms, for example. That means sound picture. And we can look at a representation of sound expressed as frequency over time. So when we look at the human word, we can make sonograms of spoken words and look at the structure of frequency over time, a representation of pictorial representation. And we do the same thing with when we look at whistles, human whistles, bird whistles, dolphin whistles. So we look at how those frequencies change over time, the little nuances, other elements that may be involved. And now um, with human whistled languages, there's a lot more being found. And it seems from some of the newer work that's been done that there's almost like an, more of an articulation of these whistles than we had expected to find that they found earlier. So that's all very new and exciting work that's being done today. You tell a very interesting story in um, a piece that I read about uh, two dolphins that you worked with. Forgive me if I mess up these details or correct me, in which one of the dolphins had recently had a baby and another, the other dolphin didn't think that this dolphin was properly caring for the baby and emitted um, a very distinct whistle early in your career, which which you saw saying basically like, go and get your baby and take care of it. And the dolphin immediately responded with great vigor and, and did so. Um, but I wonder, are, are there a couple of stories from early on or even even just one story from early on that may, really made you fascinated with, with this issue of communication in particular? Yeah, well, the one you're just talking about really was sort of a first eye-opener for me. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you a couple others. So that was actually at my my first lab, and it was with Circe and mm. Terry, and they were both females. Terry was a more experienced mother, and she had given birth to Pan, this little, her little male offspring, and she immediately swam with Pan, and he was stayed with her. And for forty-eight hours, they were swimming together. She went right to him and started swimming, and then Cersei, who was much younger and very and really less experienced, she had been captured when she was four. We shouldn't be taking dolphins from the wild. I want to say this. But at the time, she had been brought in to an aquarium. And um, she had given birth. And again, she was inexperienced. And when she, right after she gave birth, the calf just started bobbing around on its own. It was at the surface. She didn't seem to have a clue. Terry pushed her calf near the wall where I was standing and recording. And turned her head directly towards Cersei, made a very complex whistle, and Cersei made a beeline for her calf. And from that time on, Cersei just followed pretty much what Terry did. To me, that was something that had been communicated very directly. It was seemed very clear, and uh, but I couldn't decode it. I could only observe the behavior. And that's what we're stuck with. We don't know how to decode yet. We can watch and record what's going on and observe the behavior. And then we have to figure out by looking at over and over at different examples, 
what goes with what, what kinds of sounds seem to be associated with these behaviors. Often a lot's going on in total silence as well because dolphins also use body language and position relative to each other. So it's much like what we do in many ways. Even though the forms of communication may be different, they use both acoustic or vocal signaling as well as body language. So that's one. that was one wow moment. I think another time uh, that really struck me was when we were working with underwater keyboards with dolphins. And we had my research project at the time was called Project Circe out of, because of this one female. And um, we had given dolphins an underwater keyboard system because I felt that we could try to give them more choice and control. What happens if you give a big-brained, highly complex animal control over a system? Up to this point, a lot of people had trained dolphins and even trained them or taught them different to comprehend different uh, forms of gestural language or gestural codes, which were exciting experiments done out of the laboratory of Lou Herman in Hawaii. I had a different idea, though. I wanted to try to give them something that they could control so they could ask for things, request for th- request things. And I was also inspired by a lot of work that had been done with great apes by Sue Savage-Rambaugh and others who had been working with sign language, giving them a code. So we developed a three-by-three uh, matrix on a keyboard. They had white visual symbols that if the dolphins hit a key, a symbol, it would break a fiber optic beam. This was light controlled. It was so that the dolphins couldn't get hurt. We wanted to be really careful. So if they hit a key, it broke a light beam. The dolphins heard a whistle like, and they'd get a ball. If they hit a different shaped key, they would hear a different whistle like, and get a tickle or a rub from us. So they could virtually ask for different things. All the dolphins had to do was touch a key to get these things, but they did much more. They started to spontaneously imitate the sounds they were hearing on the keyboard. With great fidelity, they could match the time and the frequency exactly, but they did even more than that. They started using those sounds while they were approaching objects that were the matches. So we started hearing them not only imitating ball or ring, but as they'd approach a ball and ring in their pool, they would often whistle ball or ring. So that was showing us that they were making these associations on their own. They even used them towards us on occasion. So for example, at one point, um, one of our young dolphins, Pan, approached and he whistled the rub signal and put his own contact call at the end. So it was so we thought it was sort of like rub and then he was the call that's associated with them. Which is really exciting that they had started that. We only got that a few times, but we did see them using these these sounds frequently in the end of the first year and much in the second year. And that's terribly exciting. So that really is suggesting that the what I call the emergence of self-organized learning without us specifically teaching them We just gave them this opportunity. They showed what seems to be very much like what we see in the early language acquisition of young kids. Okay, so that was really exciting. Wow. So it's interesting because, I mean, back to what you were saying about studying their vocalizations um, using, on the one hand, precise observations um, of their behavior to be able to match that and kind of unpack the meaning that way versus the keyboard, which is like an artificial lingua franca with them. Mm -hmm. And that I think in the book, I think, I mean, for me, you made really clear what, um, why, even though, because often people think, well, 
these are two totally different things. You're either doing field studies and you're recording the vocalizations or you're working with the animal in a captive context. But, I mean, one of the points that you raise is you need a Rosetta Stone for those vocalizations because otherwise... Yeah, we need a Rosetta Stone, exactly. We don't have an intermediate language. We have no way of knowing how the information is encoded. So what was so helpful and why this keyboard functioned as a Rosetta Stone was we could, first of all, see not only what was salient for the dolphins, so we knew they could match frequency and time exactly. They didn't always do that, nor do we do that when we use words, but they could do it, and that's what their early uh, replications or imitations looked like. But we also found that in the second year of the study, they started using two whistles combined. Now, this was a big deal for us because in the second year of the study, the dolphins started a new game that we called double toy play. And for us, it may seem silly, but it was really interesting because we would have Delphi or Pan, the two younger animals, calves we call them, would go up to the keyboard and they might hit for ball, but then they'd stay there and then they might hit for ring. Now, if they hit those two keys right next to each other, they would never hear the ball and ring signal combined into one whistle because we programmed it so there was a half a second of silence between them. So they would never be combined. The dolphins combined them mm-hmm. on their own. And so we got we started seeing this combination of that looked like ball and ring and it happened frequently with in the in the in the second year of the study and what was interesting is the context they used it in was when they were playing with balls and rings together this was a new toy game they developed where they would get the ball in their mouth they get the ring they'd f- throw it into the air and try to catch it together so it was in the context of ball and ring play that they were creating this what does it mean? We don't know. That's what's so interesting, but we see it in this context. It, these objects were spatially close to each other. And you know, one might speculate, well, it could mean a lot of things. It could be that it has to do with spatial relationships. It has to do with some pairing. So I, we have some theories now about this. Maybe they're using it in their own forms of communication. Maybe they're alliances that they develop because they have very close alliances between animals might be combinatorial. Do dolphins combine their own contact calls that are often called signature whistles? They Each dolphin has its own call that's different than that of another animal. So that's some of the things we're looking at now. So that's what I mean. It gives us some Im- insight into the structure of their own signals. And it was a big breakthrough for us. And the desire to decode another's call isn't limited, of course, just to animal cognition. And w- one thing that is really one of many things that's really amazing about about you, Dr. Reese, I think, is that not only do you have the vision of this work, but you were able to marshal and continue to marshal the resources and the people against the odds to make it happen. And so you're right that this this work that you've just been talking about early in your career at your first lab was initially funded as you were straight out of graduate school by someone who was interested in um, – who's the founding director of Hewlett-Packard who was interested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, not necessarily in dolphins, but who, who you went and spoke to and managed to convince that this was worthwhile. Could you tell a little bit about that story as well? Yeah, I'm happy to. So when I got out of my PhD program, I started my lab in California, and it was right up the road. It was in Redwood City, California, and it was right up the road from NASA at where SETI was located at the time. And um, I was looking for funding, and I realized that one of the uh, – he was actually not the founder of Yule Packard. It was Dr. Barnard, 
Barney Oliver, but he was the senior vice president at mm-hmm. Hewlett Packard, one of one one of the big three there, and he was also involved in the SETI project. He was one of the principal scientists with SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I thought, well, we have a lot in common. We're all looking to try to decode. They're looking at extraterrestrial intelligence. And I used to joke that I'm looking at non-terrestrials in the sense that they're aquatic. So I called him in real night. I was extremely naive. I was young. And I thought, what the heck? I might as well go for it. We have a lot in common. So I called and I, you know, I said, hi, Dr. Oliver. You know, I'm starting this research project up the road. You know, I would love to come talk with you. And at first he was pretty busy, but then I kept on pushing with him. And and he said, sure, come on down, have lunch. And we had lunch. It began a really wonderful relationship I had with Dr. Oliver, as well as the SETI Institute. Um, Dr. Oliver Barney was a brilliant man, and he introduced me to the group. And then I started interacting with them more and more, attending those conferences, going to the giving papers and things like that, and publishing in some of the bioastronomy literature. We really do have a lot in common, and I, I tried to make the point that these are large-brained, highly social animals that have evolved in quite a different environment, and that it would they would be a great challenge and animal to work with if we could decode what they're doing. So I think there was a lot of interest. But I wasn't the first to suggest this. It turned out that John Lilly, who we had talked about before, many years before this in the 60s, had gone to SETI as well. And he piqued their interest at the time. And he they developed this uh, group organization called the Order of the Dolphin because they all agreed that this would be a great approach. So I this was kind of a second coming when I went with when, when I went to them. But they were very engaged and we had some really good, you know, collaborative discussions. And uh, I'm still connected with them in the sense that we communicate, but I don't I've never worked directly with SETI as a paid employee. It's always been uh, an affiliation that we've had. Yeah. There's an amazing story you tell in the book um, with Circe where – and it reminded me of um, Montaigne's famous quote about playing with his cat and having no way to determine for sure whether his cat wasn't playing with him. Um, I wonder if you could tell us that story. It involved a, a, a discipline method that you were using with Circe. Yeah. When you say discipline, boy, this was a friendly way because you know, <laughs> I'm very much into positive interactions with dolphins. So I was a graduate student. As I said, I, had a, I got a grant from this, the French government. I was in a U.S. institution, Temple University, but I was in Europe. And I was very fortunate to be able to work with this very young dolphin that I first named Circe. And she um, she had been, again, taken from the wild. This was before I got there. And again, I want to reiterate, I don't think we should be taking dolphins from the wild. We know enough now not to do this. But at the time, she was about three or four years old. So I was asked in exchange for working with Circe to teach her to stay in front of me with a bucket of fish while I was feeding her. This may seem simple, but for a dolphin who doesn't know what they're supposed to do, they're not, they don't have buckets of fish in the wild. They're catching fish on their own. Circe was really smart. She learned really quickly. But in the course of teaching her to stop, we had this really interesting experience. At least I had a real eye-opener. What happened was I was asking her to station, and if she didn't stay with me while I had the bucket of fish, I would give her a timeout. And what this means is I would simply back away from the pool and stand there about 10 or 15 feet from the pool and wait 
uh, and give her time to kind of think about it. It's much like what people would do with kids if they're if they're not doing something. Maybe you just give them a time to chill out for a little bit. That's as negative as you're going to get because you're breaking social interaction and the ability for her to have another fish. So I use the timeout as a mechanism to correct her, to let her know she's done something wrong. So I had started feeding her fish and I was giving her mackerel that were about twice the width of her head and I thought these are way too big. So I started cutting the mackerel into heads, middle and tail sections. And she ate all the heads, she ate all the middle sections and she spit out all the tails. And I looked at them and they had spines and sharp tails so I cut the tails so they were smooth. And I joked as a thing, I was joking and thinking, wow, she trained me to cut her fish just perhaps the way she likes it. But it worked because she would eat all the tails. Everything was going fine. And again, as long as she stayed with me while I had the bucket up, she would get fish. But on the occasions that she left station or swam away, I would back off and give her a timeout. And she quickly learned in a few days to stay at station. So everything was fine. Okay, we're a couple of weeks down the road now, and Cersei's stationing, and we're, we have this nice relationship. And by accident, one day, I threw her an uncut tail. And she looked up at me. She kind of stared at me for a second. Her eyes were kind of big. And she made a beeline <laughs> across to the other side of the pool and took a vertical position and just stayed there and stared at me. And I thought, is this really happening? Is she giving me a timeout? And it really felt very much like this because it's unusual for a dolphin to do this. And it was specifically unusual for this dolphin in particular. She had never done this before. So what do you do with that as a scientist? Okay, it's an anecdote. She came back shortly after that and then we continued and she ate every fish that I had properly cut. But then I thought I can't do anything with this. It's an anecdote, but I could make it into an experiment. So what I did was I waited a few days and then purposefully I I gave her another uncut tail. And I did this on several occasions over the next couple of days. Each time I gave her an uncut tail, she did the same beeline across the pool and she was vertical. I think she was giving me a timeout. And I think what what happened is very much like what happens when we communicate. To me, this is the essence of communication. We don't always know what something means, but we know how it works. We know the pragmatics, the function of these things. I don't know that she knew exactly what it meant to me, but she used it in a way that I was using it. To me, that's communication. And that's when I thought, this is a brain to contend with. This is a big, beautiful brain, and I want to learn more about it, but then I want to do something to protect these animals as well. That realization came on very early in my career. And that's been a key part of your work. I mean, the you, the investigations into consciousness that you've conducted, while sometimes seen as kind of distinct from or even opposed to political work, you've really, I think, um, I mean, you've challenged that in that you've argued that what we know about these animals via controlled experiments obliges us to change our world and change how our, we perceive them um, legally and change how we act toward them. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about whether that was a gradual shift for you or whether there was a moment that kind of where you snapped and realized that this was going to be incorporated into your work. Um, yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, I, I've always had a deep respect for other animals ever since I was younger. 
that came naturally. I, I, my, my whole family was like this. But I always felt that um, I, I, it was, always disturbed me when I would see animals treated cruelly. And many scientists have felt this way. Darwin was probably the first animal welfare scientist I, I learned not too long ago. Um, I think when I started working with them, I already felt a certain need to get the science into a political arena. I do basic science, but I think that as scientists, it's our obligation to translate that into something that other people can understand and then say, what are the implications that these animals are like this? I don't think you have to show um, that dolphins recognize themselves in the mirrors to say we need to protect them. There are many animals that don't and they still need to be treated in a humane way. I think that's a really important distinction to make. But I think in the case of dolphins where they are showing these high levels of social awareness and self-awareness, to look at the way they're treated in many, by many, many countries, for example, in Japan where they do the horrendous dolphin drives – where they're driven into coves and then slaughtered or captured, where those capture methods can be quite detrimental and stressful. We have a paper coming out on this in the future, in the near future. Um, it's We need to have a wake-up call here and this, this, this behavior, these arcane practices need to stop. And it's not the science that's going to stop it. It's what we do as humans with the science and that gets into ethics. So you were the science advisor for um, an extraordinarily powerful film called The Cove, which shows this Taiji um, dolphin mass killing practice in a really graphic way that you can never forget once you see mm-hmm. it. And there are these stunning images and scenes where the water is completely crimson with blood of the dolphins. Um, and his background to to listeners and, and to us as well. In, in 1986, there was a moratorium on the global commercial whaling, but the species being killed in Japan in that case are not counted and included in that, so they're not protected. And I wonder, you know, after this film came out and it received lots of awards and certainly drew an enormous amount of attention to this, yet it continues still today. And I believe it's continuing, it's probably potentially continuing right now based on the season. Yes. Um, what do you think in terms of advocacy? Clearly, the science is there that this is this is cruel. What do we need to do to do, end it? Yeah, well, so let me just back up, give you a little bit more background. So that film um, happened after we had already started huge campaigns. Back in the late 90s, there had been a lot of media out. Dan Rather covered it. Uh, others covered it on, the, on, on a lot of the morning shows back in 1998 about these drive hunts in Futo, Japan. They, the dolphins' the populations dwindled there. We don't know if they had just been killed. So many animals had been killed that there weren't enough to continue or the dolphins had moved on. That's unknown. But I discovered that after, after I did the paper on mere self-recognition in 2001, it was brought to my attention by another filmmaker, Hardy Jones, um, that these hunts were continuing. And he said, if you could speak out about this, it would be great. And I didn't think they were continuing when I – verified this. Back in 2001, I started a group with my collaborator on the uh, Mirror paper and the director of the New York Aquarium where I was working at the time, Paul Boyle. So Paul Boyle, Laurie Marino, who collaborated on the Mirror study with me. And uh, I started Act for Dolphins. And it brought scientists from all over the world and zoos and aquariums from all over the world together 
to speak out against these dolphin drive hunts. We had a, we still have a scientist statement of, of hundreds of scientists, including people from the National Marine Fisheries Service, NOAA, scientists who are experts, stating this is inhumane and it must stop. We had um, people writing to the government of Japan, to the prime minister. We held press conferences. We, I personally was went to the embassy of, in Japan in Washington, D.C. with people from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums in the United States. And zoos and aquariums from all over the world were saying, this is inhumane. By the time the cove came out, we had been working for years. And I told the director, Luis Sahoyas, about this. And that was one of the – that's how he learned about this drive hunt. So when you say what can we do, I think we've been trying to work politically. We've tried to work with scientists. Um, scientists have worked together. Many people are trying to stop this. It doesn't seem to be enough. I think the real um, driver in this will be people within Japan pushing to have this stopped. So we've been trying to work with others there because I think these things – it's very difficult to come in as a Westerner and say, you're doing something wrong. You need to listen to us. It can't be that kind of voice. We can give them all the science, but I think we have to start working collaboratively and trying to make change from within. So that's the hope. So my colleagues and I have published several papers now. One is coming out shortly about the practices in the drive hunts and the killing methods. These are not humane by any stretch of the imagination. So we're hoping that we can open up this dialogue. One um, ironic twist that came out of the hunting practices that I thought was very poignant, which you tell the story of in your book, is of an, another advocacy effort that you're a part of, which is saving um, and help, stranded marine mammals. And in particular, in, in 1985, you were part of an extraordinary and a amazing effort to save a 40-foot long whale, confused humpback whale, who was stuck in the San Francisco Bay. And you write about how you use some of the methods developed by the hunters to corral the dolphins to kill them, to then save this dolphin with a huge community effort in San Francisco. Will you tell us that story? Sure. So in 1985, um, this really big humpback whale that everybody started calling Humphrey wandered into San Francisco Bay. It was during Fleet Week, so there was a lot of stuff going on in the bay. And at the time, I was a science advisor for the Marine Mammal Rescue Center, the California Marine Mammal Rescue Center. But I was working at my lab down the road. Humphrey worked his way in 80 miles inland from going from bay to bay into smaller and smaller bodies of water up into these little sloughs that were like big creeks. It was crazy. He was this huge whale. And we had to get him out of there. So my colleague, Ken Norris, who I consider, many of us consider the father of marine mammal science, had this idea to use the oikomi method that they use in Japan to drive dolphins, but in this case, use it for good. So we created an arc of small boats, and we used metal pipes with hammers to create a barrier of sound. And we had an arc of boats, and we would get behind Humphrey and drive him back south out to, towards the open ocean. It worked for a while, but then it stopped working as we got into bigger and bigger bodies of water. Then we had to use playback. What's playback? What we do with that is we played back the sounds of feeding humpback whales that we got from one of my colleagues, Lou Herman and Scott Baker in Hawaii, and we played them back to the whale to see if we could attract him now to the boat and we could then lead him back with us. And no one had ever done a successful playback prior to that. And were these contact calls of other whales? These were not. These, we think, were just feeding calls of oh, other sorry. whales. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah. It was recorded in Alaska during a feeding context. So 
we played these calls back, and I was put in charge of this playback operation. I was with the rescue before this. There were many of us working, but I was in charge of this playback. And I really felt like I was up a creek because I wasn't a humpback whale person. Our scientists who did humpback whales had left the operation earlier. And uh, that's a whole other story about what went on earlier. But just to focus on this. Um, so we did the playback. And as soon as we turned it on to see, he, he came right to our boat. This big humpback whale it was just like calling your dog. It was amazing. So he followed us, and we were able to actually lead him out into the out through the Golden Gate Bridge. So there are a lot of stories involved in this. There were lots of moments in here that were so um, wondrous and so taxing and so frightening in the sense of, are we going to get him out in time? There was no food there. It was so cinematic that I wrote a screenplay with one of my, with one of my colleagues. And now we hope we can get this produced because I want to share that story with the rest of the world. Wow. There's a moment in the in the book, too, when you describe having to stop a line of 5 p.m. traffic because it was percolating into the water and disrupting the... So it turned into a, a hu- human drama as well, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. These rescues always involve human communication and drama. And at one point, one of the bridges, the Rio Vista Bridge, was a really large bridge. And I had been doing recordings with my hydrophones, which are underwater microphones, and we found that the bridge was acting like a giant resonator. Whales don't usually go through physical barriers, and they generally don't want to go through acoustic barriers. So we needed to shut down this resonating bridge, but it was 5 o'clock traffic. But there were a lot of heroes involved in this story because people all seemed to have this big heart. They all wanted to help Humphrey. It was really like, let's get this E.T. home. It was really like an E.T. story, but with a whale. And we were getting calls from all over the world. It was an international news story. And again, the the personal dramas and the dramas and the interactions between us and this whale really are that are are the makings of a film and it's stuff that you just can't make up i mean we had some really interesting uh moments with this whale there are so many fascinating connections to you between storytelling not just to mention your background in theater now coming back many years later to be very relevant and very helpful but also connections i think between the power of telling an individual story in terms of moving a person's heart and mind versus speaking about large numbers or populations to tell the story of humphrey in particular or of a particular dolphin i think is very captivating and um and, and moving to people and then also seeing that same role play out with the anecdotes that you mentioned inspiring your science and that it's the particular stories with Circe or with Pan or with the other dolphins that then spark the idea of a particular question to investigate or a new way of thinking. And there's a fascinating line that you say that you say to your students, which is to the first time they go out to spend time with the animals, don't go out with a clipboard and a pencil and an agenda effectively or, uh, you know, certain things you're trying to knock off, but just go out and spend a week and just watch them and try to be be with them, and which is something that you do yourself. Why is that so valuable, that approach? Yeah, I think that we all have different ways of seeing, hearing, learning about these animals. And often they'll tell you things or show you things if you're a good observer. So I just want to relate this, that the first time I ever came into this with this idea was by reading Conrad Lorenz's book. It's called um, King Solomon's Ring. Conrad Lorenz was an ethologist, a very famous ethologist in uh, Germany. And he talked about the fact that there had been this, this old biblical story that 
wise old King Solomon could communicate with animals, that he had the magic of communication, and that he uh, and that he just had this ability to understand other animals. And what Conrad Lorenz said, because he studied animal behavior, an ethologist is one who studies the natural behavior of animals, he said, perhaps King Solomon didn't have a magic ring, but instead he had the power of observation. And it just resonated mm-hmm. with me. And I always felt that... Um, but just putting yourself aside for a moment and just observing, seeing what you can see, hearing what you can hear, you'll see patterns or hear patterns emerge. And that can inform what you do with the kind of questions you ask. And in that way, I think we can partner with the animals. My best ideas about animals often come from the animals themselves. I think I, I get ideas about the kinds of experiments I'd like to do by watching them and also finding ways to let them have input. So that's sort of my MO. I'm not really interested in training animals. I'm not really interested in teaching them to do things that we do. I'd rather give them an an object and see what they do with it or try to understand what their world is like. So when you did your mirror study with a colleague, Lori Marino, that totally revolutionized um, the field. It got a flood of public attention. What happened? Why was it so groundbreaking? I think when we did the study uh, that was published in PNAS on mirror self-recognition, it was an interesting study for many reasons. All of the work prior to that had suggested that only great apes would show this behavior because of their link to us, the, the, obviously the relationship between us and great apes. Monkeys had not shown this ability. So there were lots of theories going around why the great apes would be showing it and not monkeys and not other animals. No one had actually asked whether dolphins could do it. They never tested it. Now, Gordon Gallup, who did the original study with great apes, with chimps, um, actually proposed, was the first to propose that we should look at dolphins and elephants because these would be great candidates. They're both large-brained animals, highly social. So he actually suggested that. And then Laurie Marino, who was one of his students, and Gordon discussed it with me. We did an earlier study together, the three of us, and then the one we published in PNAS was Laurie and me on the study. So, but it was, it was not, um, it was not surprising to me that we would find that result. I, I felt we would, but I think it surprised a lot of others what? to find it in dolphins. Why do you think that is? Because you've spoken about before how people accept the fact that we're physically evolved from common ancestors um, with these other creatures that share the planet with us now, but perhaps are less inclined to fully accept what Darwin, I believe, referred to as going the whole ring, or one of his colleagues did, that we're also mentally um, evolved from from a common ancestor, and therefore the, that the idea of there being a mental leap that mankind has made does not fit with Darwin's theories and fits, if anything, with more of his some of his opponents at the time. But I wonder, why is it that the default seems to be, at least for most of the public and most scientific community, that animals don't have self-recognition if we do, and then unless it's proven to, though, of course, it's complicated, but uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence instead of the deep. But why is it that, that that's the default instead of assuming that since we have it and they're on the scale of things, very much like us, that of course they would have it too as the default unless proven otherwise. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I keep on thinking about the next book I want to write, and and it's about what if we got this all wrong, you know, from the beginning, that there's much more of a continuity than we've given them credit for. And the more science we do, the more research, we find that animals share so many of our abilities. They do things that we don't do. 
as well. And it's just, you know, these findings are, they're always so much fun and interesting to read because we didn't expect many things that we're finding. So when you think about, um, you know, Darwinian, the view of Darwinian continuity of physical evolution, he also published these books along with Romani's and another uh, colleague of his suggesting that there's much more in terms of emotional or intellectual evolution. But it took time to percolate. It took time to convince people. And now we have many, many studies that are showing that very thing, that other animals do in fact share these abilities with us. But I do think the default is to assume that they are mindless. I don't know why that is. When you watch animal behavior, it just because you see something that looks complex doesn't mean that it is. So we have to be careful not to fall into that trap. Many things that look complex can be explained by other things. Many things that look quite simple are really quite complex. Walking looks quite simple as a behavior, but it really takes a lot of complexity. So um, I think we have to be careful. We still have to be able to show it. But now I think we are, again, finding new and interesting techniques to get into all sorts of interesting questions, to be able to ask questions that we never even thought about asking before. I wonder, in the wake of um, the mirror study, so in part because it was so pathbreaking intellectually, there was some some people, I think Marino had argued that this should totally change our calculus about even studying them in captivity at all. And I wonder whether that result, that they are self-aware, that they can recognize themselves, inflects or should inflect our methods of investigating them. Yeah, so um, Lori Marino, my colleague on the study, has been a strong proponent of not having animals in captivity at all. I've taken a slightly different route here. I think that each... Uh, animal has to be treated respectfully and with great concern about their welfare. My focus has been more on stopping drive hunts where these animals are being slaughtered. And I'm currently working, uh, doing my research at the National Aquarium where uh, they made the decision to build the dolphins, dolphin first sanctuary. And I think that's a vision that I've had a part in and I'm very excited about that. I think different organizations will come to their conclusions. I think it's wonderful to set a precedent and to put an example out there and say, this is what we've chosen to do. Uh, National Aquarium hasn't found the spot yet, but they've expressed what they're doing, and I think I'm proud to be part of that. Um, I think that when other organizations see that, um, they may choose to do something similar or not. But again, it's an idea. It's an initiative, and I think it's a great one for right now. I wonder if you could tell us about um, specific dolphins you're working with now, if who they are, what what it's like to walk into the lab and have them recognize you, if you could just take us. Sure. Well, I have – we actually have three labs, believe it or not, and they're all remote. Two are in the wild and one's at National Aquarium. So at the National Aquarium, we have um, – installed a four-by-eight-foot touchscreen, underwater touchscreen. That's a continuation in some ways of the early keyboard work, but much more sophisticated. I do this work with my colleague at Rockefeller University, Marcelo Magnasco, um, who's head of the Integrative Neuroscience Laboratory there. We've been working with a social group of seven dolphins. It's three generations of animals, which is fascinating. And uh, we're able to give them this touchscreen. It's not really a... a 
tactile touchscreen. It's an optical touchscreen. So it's super safe. It's behind a window. And when the dolphins touch it with their beak, the rostrum, the pointy part of their head, a camera registers the touch. So, and then we know what's been touched. And it functions in a similar way, but it gives the dolphins the opportunity to ask for things. They can play games. They can ask for items. They can watch videos. We're very interested in seeing what happens even eventually if we can link dolphins in different facilities, what happens if they see dolphins in the wild. There's an acoustic component that will be there. Will they learn like the other dolphins? And I think this is, again, this idea of enriching their lives uh, with these devices and then that enriches our science. So we're working with dolphins including little Bailey and Foster who are two of the youngest, male and female. They We also uh, did a study with them showing that they were able to recognize themselves in a mirror at a younger age than kids. Uh, we published really? that. We published that last year. Um, we did a second mirror study at the National Aquarium, but we also showed many of the dolphins there. Some the adults were also really interested in looking at themselves in mirrors. Um, there were um, Chesapeake and Jade and Maya and Spirit among those, and Bo. So that's been pretty exciting. It's a whole group of them, each an individual, each interesting in their own way, and with different personalities. So that's the group we're working with there. Um, We're also recording their vocalizations. So that's one lab. The other labs are in the wild. We have a lab in Belize where we study wild bottlenose dolphins, and we're using new equipment that we've been developing. We're using drones there. Uh, where we can hover above them and be as invisible as possible because we don't want to disrupt them. Um, And we're trying to look at their behavior from above, from five feet above. And that's a whole new set of observations that are so exciting for us because you can actually see patterns in their movements and behavior that we haven't been able to see before. People have been using drones to look at um, health and make population assessments in other waters, but not so much with dolphins. So we're really excited about that. And um, we've just created a device called the RoboDolph, which is a remote vehicle powered by electric motor, so it's quiet, so we can locate the dolphins with the drones and then send out this RoboDolph that would have recording equipment so that we're not right there, but the RoboDolph is, and then it can send back information. So that's been partially developed. Um, In Bimini is our other site. Um, We do studies in the summer. We also do student field trips at Hunter College where I teach. Um, But we do – Marcelo and I – Lucky students. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And we do – that's where everybody says, oh, that's too bad. You have to drag yourself out to Belize (laughs) and Bimini. Um, In Bimini, which are crystal clear waters and they're bottlenose dolphins and spotted dolphins, we're working um, out there and we're studying bow riding. In the very beginning of the the show, we talked about the ancient Greeks talking about the dolphins that bow ride. I think you yourselves have been on and had that experience. But um, there have been very few studies of bow riding in terms of the dynamics and what's going on. They're so coordinated when they bow ride. So we've been trying to study bow riding and we've created a new recording device so that we can use two 360-degree cameras made up of GoPro cameras, and we record, and then we use our hydrophones, and then this gets stitched together. So you are in the pod. 
So now we have our first footage of being in the pod, and you can look in front of you. You can look to the side behind you. You see the dolphins coming up from behind. So we're in the first stages of that those recordings. So that's super cool for us, and it's just um, my colleague Marcelo Magnasco uh, has figured out how to do this. I, I'm I'm a scientist who feels like um, I feel like now I'm in elementary school again learning these techniques. But it's been great great for me to learn all these ways of studying dolphins in new ways. Oh, that sounds thrilling. So it's like the imp- the imprint gets reduced, but the embeddedness um, increased yeah. in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing that's really fun is when we have our great students at Hunter College, because these are the people who are going to be doing things in the future and getting this out to the next generation. One of my star students I have to brag about is Isabella Rossellini, who is the actress, the, yes, the actress, and she went back to school. She's still obviously performing, but she got really interested, and in, she's always been interested in animals, and she's now performing a new show called Link Link Circus, and it's very much about um, the history of how we think about ourselves in relationship to other animals. Um, and it's uh, some of it, I think, was initially based on my class. I had her, I said, don't write a paper for me, write a script. And she did this beautiful script about what we covered in class. And then she went far beyond that and produced this whole wonderful, wonderful show that she's touring in Europe and the United States, Link Link Circus. Try to see it if you can. It's wonderful. It's fabulous. Yeah. And so also a real testament to the extraordinarily interdisciplinary nature of your work and also its impact, not just on you know, how we think about dolphins, but also how we think about ourselves. To, to close, we like to ask each guest that we have on the show for a few recommendations of either books or films. We certainly recommend The Cove to everybody who, who hasn't seen it. But books or films have influenced how they think about animals and human-animal relationships. Do a couple come to mind that you would recommend? Uh, yeah, well, The Cove, obviously, because I was involved in that. And I think that really, it's a difficult film to watch, perhaps, but it's really important to see it. Um, I think that another film that I've loved is Arrival, most recently. Um, I like the fact that they sort of make you think about another form of intelligence in a very different way. I think what was important for me in that film and inspiring is that as we learn to decode the communication of another and it can be difficult, and you can see this, and the scientists struggling with this. It actually changes your ways of thinking. I mean, this is an idea we've, that we've had out there for a long time. Benjamin Lee Worf um, put this forth. It was actually referred to in the film that language, thought, and communication are inextricably linked. So the way we perceive the world is going to be reflected in our language. And our language is going to reflect how we see the world, and it can change. And um, I used to – I taught a course about this many years ago, and that film really hit me. So with dolphins, as I'm learning more about them, it does change you, and it changes how you see the dolphins. So that was inspiring. It's like that Wittgenstein quote, the limits of my world are the limits of my language. Yes, actually, absolutely. He was another big hero for me, Wittgenstein. So yeah, those are are things that I think would be useful to – for people to have a look at. Right, that in the book, too, you, there was this wonderful passage where you're talking about that famous essay by Thomas Nagel, the philosopher, what is it like to be a bat? And you, you make the distinction between th- that he he makes this point that we can know when we try to imagine what it would be like to, say, be able to echolocate, we're imagining what it would be like to be a human echolocating. But I think it's part of the profundity of your work that language is perhaps the closest we can get to surpassing that 
being a human being a dolphin. It's a mystery. But. Yeah, and I, but I think that the power of empathy is critical here. I think once we observe them and think about what we're learning, the capacity for empathizing for another animal really um, is terribly important. You know? And then what do we do with that information? How do we act ethically? Dr. Reese, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, too, to our talented producers for this episode, Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and Chad Bernard at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find more information about Dr. Reese and her work. Thanks for listening.